Hi, my name's Greg. This is Betsy. And this is Going on 30, a Popping Collars side hustle, where we look back at movies nominated for Best (laughs) Picture 30 years ago, 31 years ago, when you're listening to this, because we'll have gone into the new year. Yeah, happy 2020, new decade. This month, oh, Betsy, it's time. What's the time for, Greg? It's time. We've waited all this time. I just... I can't it's believe time. you made me wait. It's time to let the river run, Betsy. Oh, let it <laughs> run, Greg. Time for working, girl. It's time now for working, I- girl. There isn't any room at the top for local girls like us. I'm not giving up. In the land of opportunity. They're not going to give you no shot test. They're going to shoot you. Where dreams are won and lost. Spray me down. Well, I can't very well walk around my own party clinging. Someone's about to get what she deserves. I know I'm asking an awful lot, Tess, but I I don't know what else to do. I need you to take over. Do me a favor, be me. Be my secretary. You do, sir? Thank you, Cynthia. Hold all calls, Miss McGill? Yes, Cynthia, thank you. Can I get you anything, Mr. Trainer? Coffee, tea, me? <laughs> Isn't she right? That'll be all, Cynthia. But how you look. I have a head for business and a bod for sin. Is there anything wrong with that? No. No. 20th Century Fox presents Harrison Ford. Last night was special. It wasn't so special. I had to carry up three flights of stairs. Sigourney Weaver. This woman is my secretary. She's not. Oh, no. Ask her. Melanie Griffith. How about you? I'm flat broke. I'm crazy about a man that I will probably never see again. Well, besides that. (laughs) In a new film directed by Mike Nichols. I'm telling you, she's your man. Working girl. You know, maybe I just don't like you. Me? All right. I have a uh, description of this movie. Would you like to hear it? I would love to hear it. Okay. Ambitious secretary Tess McGill, played by Melanie Griffith, makes her way up the corporate ladder with a little creative deception by taking over when her boss, Catherine Parker, played by Sigourney Weaver, breaks her leg on a ski trip. Pretty good. I don't know, though, whether I agree with... I mean, deception. I I don't know. Let's talk about that. Well, she's she's pretending to be someone she's not yet. Not yet. (laughs) Got it. But one thing you left out was makes her way up the corporate ladder with varying amounts of hairspray. Oh, there you go. Well, as the hair goes down. Oh, goes down. She goes up. I know. Uh, I love (laughs) Betsy. What's your history with working girl? So this of all the movies. Yeah. Was one that I have rewatched. Mm-hmm. Comes on USA, right? And back oh, yeah. when we used to just graze and watch television with commercials. Mm-hmm. You watch this movie, right? There'd be, you know, maybe a little editing here and there, a mm-hmm. uh, little language, a little yeah. sexy time, maybe, but not really. I mean, some, but not. Well, really. you got to lose. You got to lose the underwear shots. I would right. Imagine, right. Yeah, right. There's so. a lot, and that's the we're we're definitely banking on that in the movie. <laughs> Lots of garter belts, but I think 
that the, so I've watched this movie more than any of the other. Movies, okay, but All I right. have not watched it in a while. Uh huh. Like it's well, probably it's, been a good decade. Yeah, I mean it's a thirty-year-old movie, so at some yeah. point you move on. Some point. Uh, so I, I have... that's what I was the most interested in was okay. how does this movie hold? You know, definitely knowing that it has its own Me Too aspects to it. And how was it going to actually hold up? Was I going to still love the parts I love? Like that's Oh, yeah. What about you? Now, this was the one you've never seen this movie. Never seen. Never seen. So this goes back to sort of prescribed gender roles in our society. This is what would have been called at one time, especially when I was being raised and this movie came out, a chick flick. Mm. And so therefore, I was not the intended audience and I did not participate in watching the movie Look however yes see uh however having watched the movie really like it i really like it this is no, my what, first what time watching it that? i really like okay so here's the thing uh and I'll, I'll start this is my first take on it of all the nominated movies that we've watched so far all of them felt oscar baity right like they felt like oh this is an important picture right. that deserves recognition you know, so on and so forth. This felt like a real wild card. Like, I'm, right. I was looking at the description of this movie. I was like, this is really outside of, like, a Mississippi burning and uh, dangerous liaison. This is doing something very different. And I think I liked the wild card aspect of it. Because it kept it kept making me think, like, okay, so what is it that this has that maybe Big wouldn't have? Right or right because I sit here and I'm like, rap. is this a is this a comedy or is it a drama? Right or is it now what we would understand in a world post Grey's Anatomy and all these other things? Is it a dramedy? Because mm-hmm. there's comedic aspects and and physical comedy things happening in this movie. Yeah, that that kind of made me go, huh? You know, yeah, holding this movie up next to a period drama. Right. You know, something excellent tour is so weird and quirky. Is this bad or is this good? I'm not sure. Someone could talk me into it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And then a serious historical film. And then I don't know what's his call Rain Man. But like that, you know, it is a weird nomination for for the Academy, which made me think, I wonder when they pulled up that slate, people like, well, this isn't gonna win, but isn't right. it nice that they were nominated? Like um, was it ever really serious? I mean, I got to figure that the factor, the biggest factor that has going for it is that it's a Mike Nichols film. So Mike Nichols th- directed film. Right. So that brings a whole nother level to the movie coming into the mix that but, maybe a big or a fish called Wanda doesn't have coming into the room. But at that time, let's talk about Nichols. Mm-hmm. At that time, though, in his he had done. You know, I mean, he had done The Graduate. He had the, done The like, Graduate. You know, yeah. This is when our first movie and our last movie intersect, right? right. Dustin Hoffman connection. There we go. He had done The Graduate. He'd done Catch-22, Carnal Knowledge, Day of the Dolphin, and then it's kind of, okay, The Fortune, Guild Love, Silkwood, okay, great. Silkwood. Heartburn, great. Biloxi Blues, mm-hmm. who's this, you know, character? We Matthew like him Broderick, a lot. Yeah. Matthew Broderick. And then Working Girl. I mean, I guess, yeah. I mean, this is his second movie in a year. I mean, this is this is a lot of there's a lot of space between those other projects, like five years Mm -hmm. between The Fortune and Guild Alive. And now he's kind of speeding up. Right. So then he'll do postcards from the edge two years later. 
regarding Henry the next year. And then it, then it kind of starts spacing back out again a little bit. Yeah. But, um, but yeah, I agree. The pedigree of Mike Nichols is, uh, is definitely helping to carry this movie. And I think having three people in the leads who, who have their own clout going on as well, sort of, maybe not Melanie Griffin as much as everybody else. Yeah, so the Melanie Griffith thing is interesting, too. So the note that I have here is that she feels like a frowning Marilyn Monroe mm. in this movie. I think she's excellent in this movie. I think she I does do a too. great job. And if you look at just Melanie Griffith's trajectory, right? She'd done, you know, Malagro Beanfield War. <laughs> she'd been on Miami Vice. Right. Something called Stormy Monday. I don't even know what that is. Came out the same year. And so she did, did seem like this new face what i love about watching her acting in this movie is what she does with her face and her eyes and her hair like Mm -hmm. there's things that really stick with me in this movie like when she's when she's in the limo with kevin spacey and he just (laughs) and just you know to even talk about this in a me too kind of way you know and you know there's kevin spacey in the middle of the movie or at the beginning of the movie. And the way when he like spills the stuff on it, like the way she just rolls her eyes. And I just, it felt like it was holding everything that, that, you know, at least women who were trying to be corporate at the time, all the BS that they had to deal with. So, <clears throat> is this where you usually meet for drinks? Mm. This is a big week. It's a super week. We are celebrating. Mm. Oh, arbitrage. Talk about adrenaline, huh? What do you think is the most important quality for a great arbitrager? Well, we'll go through all that at the hotel. The hotel? Yeah, the company keeps a suite at the Ritz-Carlton, and you know, when it's empty, they give it to us boys on a bonus basis. Whoa, we're going to party! Ah! Hey. <laughs> oh, I'm sorry. Oh, allow me. I'm so sorry. Hey, Bob, please! I'm sorry, I'm sorry. I just I get a little carried away. <laughs> and and you know, she's not, still not, even at that moment, getting out of the limo. She's right. still trying to talk about the position. And I'm sitting there going, honey, it's gone. But but because this is the kind of crap you have to put up with to get mm-hmm. the job. And the way she rolls her eyes there, the way when she's on the muscle relaxant at the party and the sh- the way she shakes her head and the way she just does it. When they go to the wedding reception to try to, you know, get Trask to talk to them and she steps out on the floor and they're playing that da-na-na, that song. And she just kind of kicks right. her head back just a little bit like it's the little touches yeah. She's really good at that. I was I was really taken with her all over again. Uh, yeah, you know, uh, the fairy scenes back and forth from Staten Island. Yes. I thought she uh, she did great in those. And um, honestly, the scenes with Alec Baldwin yeah. were great. I thought their their chemistry was excellent. Yeah. Um, the Harrison Ford chemistry. I mean, you know, I, I, I think it's hard for Harrison Ford not to have chemistry with everybody. Like, he <laughs> just seems like a naturally charismatic guy. It's happening all the time. It's hard to turn um, it but especially between her and Alec Baldwin, it felt like that felt very real. It felt like a woman who was constantly apologizing, even when her boyfriend was in bed with another woman. Mm-hmm. It's like that. Oh, OK, well, even though you did this horrible thing, I guess I'm sorry, you know, that I made you look like a fool in front of your friends at a bar. Yeah, it's yeah. just like it's yeah, just when they so together again at the at the bridal shower. Yeah, like that. That you know, you could believe that they would. She's different now, and she's embodying that, and she's dressed different, and she's acting different, and she's happy for him. But then, but that it's so much so that you believe that he would ask. 
And right. you're then so proud of her for saying, you know, maybe or whatever, <laughs> you know, uh, it just that, feels like a very like it's different for girls moment. If he had caught her in bed three days before with someone right. like this wouldn't be a possibility, you know, of them reconnecting or whatever. But yeah. Alec Baldwin. And all his hairy chested glory. Looking very Billy Baldwin in this movie. Looking very like, yeah, like a different Baldwin. Well, it's that to... young Baldwin. It's that Beetlejuice Baldwin. It's that, you know, he's he's kind of nerdy in Beetlejuice. This he's kind of, you know, he's a hot guy who's getting his boat business off the ground. You know? <laughs> he's got a really bad, like, fake tattoo on his arm. You know, he's just, he's trying to make it work. I liked Alec Baldwin in this. Um, so, uh, Sigourney Weaver. Yes. Who I really like. Sigourney Weaver made me my MVP of the movie. I always think of her as like somebody who's really scary and tough. I I, I guess a lot of that has to do with aliens, you know, the alien franchise, because mm-hmm. it's just so like tied into her character. And she plays scary and tough in this, but also, I don't know, in a very like over the top silly way. And it, I don't know. She, it, I find her really endearing in this movie. I think that she's, she could be a typical villain and she does villainous things, but mm-hmm. she also does likable things, yeah. which, which makes her more complicated, which, which well, I, and I think it, if it, I don't know whether is this movie nuanced enough that some of what they were trying to do was embody what she has had to be. To make it in mm-hmm. this business, mm-hmm. you know, do I believe that every idea that has helped Catherine Parker get to the top has been stolen from somebody? No, right. But what I did see on parade was privilege. Yeah, and the way she knows people, and I'm staying at Daddy and Mommy's house, mm-hmm. and of course I know the person at the chalet who can get me the better room, and yeah, you know, and when you hear her correspondence. When mm-hmm. she's yeah, you know, one of my favorite scenes. I think my one of my favorite scenes. My fave scene is <laughs> when she goes. Tess goes over to the townhouse, mommy and daddy's townhouse, because Catherine has broken her leg, and she's asked her to take care of all this stuff. Because of course the housekeeper has the has the month off, right? And she gets on the exercise bike and is listening to the tape recorder of right. all of her taped correspondence. When she starts to try to mimic her, you know. Oh, sisters and Wellesley trying to do the diction in there. It's just dripping with all of Nichols does a good job of saying, look at all of the benefits that this woman has had to be in the place where she is. Because Sigourney Weaver makes a point of saying that they're she's younger than Tess. Right. Even though in actuality, Sigourney Weaver is like eight years older than. Yeah, she was pushing 40 in this movie, playing a 29-year-old. Yeah, I, I was yeah, like, so. I mean, her skin's beautiful. Yeah. But I think, because there's also this other aspect of the movie, which is this female-on-female takedown. Right. But it didn't step into it in the, in the kind of the way I thought it was going to. You know? so, but it did become a portrait of, Tess has not had the advantages right. that a Catherine Parker has had. And she's worked her ass off and the system is not built for you. The system mm-hmm. is built for you to look this way and be this way when she's kind of a clone of all these other women around her. And you don't really see another woman, aside from maybe Nora Dunn, but not really, that Catherine Parker is supposed to look like. There is no cutter. Yeah. There's no 
cookie cutter that you're supposed to look like. Whereas with the hair and the eyeshadow and the, the Reebok tennis shoes that you commute in and, and all of that, that's what you're supposed to look like in, in, in what is now falling apart. This idea of the secretary pool. Yeah. Well, the big telling moment for me, and this gets into my best scene that I liked in the movie. It was the merger scene. This, this is a closed meeting. and you. Thank God I'm here. What the hell is going on? You're being tricked. That's what's going on. Catherine, what are you... Jack, doing? just trust me and sit down. My name is Catherine Parker, and I'm an associate partner in mergers and acquisitions at Petty Marsh. And this woman is my secretary. She's not? Oh, no? Ask her. You're not her secretary? can explain, Jack. Oh, Jesus. You are her secretary. While I was laid up with broken bones, she rifled through my desk, found my memo outlining a Trask radio acquisition, and has been passing it off as her idea. It was my idea. She stole it from me, I swear. Good God, Tess, don't you know when to stop? But you're lying. Oh. Thank you all so much. The upside is that I have found out in time to control the damage. We have containment and we have a deal on the table. I say, pass me a set of papers and let's get on with it. But anyway, what I like about that merger scene is that Catherine comes into the room and she argues her case for why she needs to be in the room. But only one woman can be in that room. Like you never get the sense that both of them could be there. Yep. Like right. this is a corporate world where we'll maybe take one woman, but that's our limit. Right. And that yeah. was, that was a really telling moment too. I thought like, and, it's, and, yeah. And why does the guy who's the head of Metro, who's from the South have to look like a young Colonel Sanders? What's that about? <laughs> there can only be one of him as well. Only one with the only hair. One. And the beard. I'm like, just. Uh, who's your best actor in the movie? It's got to be Griffin. It's Griffin. Melanie Griffin. Oh, really? Just. I really, really enjoy. I was thinking, you know, in the way I pull for the the supporting Bill Pullman-ish people that it was going to be Alec Baldwin. Uh-huh. But I think Melanie Griffin and then the close runner up would be Joan Cusack. Yeah, Joan Cusack's doing a Just. very Joan Cusack performance. In this. I thought about when we talked about a Gina Davis role. Right. That there's a Gina, there is a Joan Cusack. <laughs> there's a Joan Cusack role. And she <laughs> nailed it. She was great in every scene. I love just her physicality, her yeah. heart. It just shines through every character she does. Yeah, Melanie Griffith has some really good moments. I think for me, it's Sigourney Weaver. I thought that, um, I think, you know, like I said, I think that she was given something different in this movie than what I would sort of expect of a Sigourney Weaver role. Like, she wasn't taking herself as seriously. Um, And she, you know, just looking at that, she has a huge 1988. We've already talked about, like, um, two Oscar noms, one for supporting actress for this movie, one for best actress for Gorillas in the Mist. Mm. She has two big sequels coming after this movie. She has Ghostbusters 2 coming up and Alien 3 coming up. There is a, something that you need to support in Sigourney Weaver as a woman in Hollywood that I think I think this movie 
touches that what she's been doing mm-hmm. in a way that's different. Who is it? Who is it in the movie who says the? Oh, it was. Um, it was when Harrison Ford meets Melanie Griffin in the bar, and mm-hmm. he says, "He says I just appreciate that somebody's coming to these things looking like a woman, dressed like a woman, uh, as yeah. opposed to being dressed like a man." Mm-hmm. Catherine dresses like a woman, right? Even though she wears blazers and stuff like that. She is also that person too. And I think as a woman myself in a in a industry, the church that's mm-hmm. been male dominated in leadership, there has long been that feeling. You can see it in how clergy women dress. That mm-hmm. for a long time they were wearing the blazer too, that because I'm here and I need to I need to make sure I can, you know, talk with the boys and be with the boys and and not be something other or different. I want to blend in so that I don't stand out and and am then othered. And now, you know, seeing even in clergy female dress clothing, just the wide diversity of different designers and different things that are happening in that you don't have to necessarily, I don't own blazers. I don't have blazers. For a while I was wearing the faux blazer, the cardigan, and then I kind of stopped doing that. And then I'm wearing, you know, regular clothes with a collar. And it made me think about that Sigourney Weaver herself, you know, Alien changed the game for her in 86, two years before this. Yeah. She's a ball buster. She kicks ass. She has a, has a gun. Mm -hmm. She's killing. She's surviving. Uh, She's terrified and afraid, but strong. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I think that movie, you know, I want to go look up, you know, I know there's gotta be a great New York magazine piece on it or New York or something on what that did for her as an actress and how yeah. it probably set her in a different category and people didn't really necessarily know what to do with her. She's so strong. Let's get to some stats about yeah. the movie. Uh, stats about the movie. It opened on December 20th, 1988. Ooh, December release. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So they must have thought they had something. Domestic gross of $63 million. It was the number 11 grossing movie of 1988. Okay. Yeah. Uh, it's the number 1,312th top grossing movie of all time okay. between Mona Lisa's Smile mm-hmm. and The Witches of Eastwick. Both get, movies feel a little of the, of, they feel like they're friends. I, I, I they was, would imagine all three of these movies yeah. would be friends with like each they're other. All, they're all <laughs> they would all like one another and hang out. Uh, 83% on Rotten Tomatoes. It's pretty good. Yeah. Uh, it is the number 13. It is number 13 on the movies of Harrison Ford list on Metacritic. Uh, Roger Ebert, Raj. What do you think? I bet loved he, it. Did he love it? Loved I bet it. He loved it. Working Girl is Mike Nichols returning to the top of his form and Melanie Griffith finding hers. Four out of four stars. Wow. So you and Raj. Raj and I love it. Simpatico. Um, by the way, I was kind of kicking around. So we, we talk about Roger because we know that he's watched every movie on the planet and it's easy to access his reviews through rogerebert.com. But I was thinking to myself, was Pauline kale still writing in 1988? It turns out, yes, she didn't retire until 1991. So I have Pauline kale reviews for all of the movies that we've watched so far. Do you want to hear them? Yes, I do. Please, (laughs) please very much. Yes. No. Okay, Pauline Kale did not review Mississippi Burning, so we do not have a Mississippi Burning uh, review. Uh, okay, Pauline Kale on the Accidental Tourist. I found tourist hell to sit through. <laughs> thank you, thank you, Pauline Kale. Thank you. 
<laughs> Pauline Kale on Working Girl. Mike Nichols must have had a cummerbund around his head. The directing is constricted. There's no visual inventiveness or spontaneity. And in his hands, the script has no conviction. Dang. Love Pauline Kale. I love her. Okay, this is my favorite. Okay. Rain Man. Absolutely, please. This is my favorite. Everything in this movie is fudged ever so humanistically in a perfunctory, low-pressure way, and the picture has its effectiveness. People are crying at it. Of course they're crying at it. It's a piece of wet kitsch. (laughs) Yes! 100%. 100% wet kitsch. (laughs) Of course they're crying at it. (laughs) That's amazing. Oh, man. Did she do Dangerous Liaisons? We need more Pauline Kales. Uh, Yes, she did Dangerous Liaisons. A first-rate piece of work by a director who's daring and agile. It's heaven, alive in a way that movies rarely are. Wow. I think we may be a Pauline Kale podcast. I think we might be. (laughs) How did this movie do at the Oscars? It won one Oscar. You know it, Betsy. In the choir at my high school graduation, Greg. I gotta tell you, I I don't really have a history with this song. So when you look at the songs that have been nominated for Best Picture Oscars, having a radio song that is written specifically for this film, yeah, this is really the beginning of that being a thing. Yeah, you know, after this, you kind of move into your Little Mermaid song is gonna win. You know, whenever yeah. there's Disney, they're gonna win. But the real idea of a soundtrack. Mm-hmm. It's like I looked up. Yeah, I can get the the Working Girl soundtrack, and it's got yeah. Lady in Red, and you know all these other you know songs that are on it. And I thought thought about that in the way that I had the Pretty Woman soundtrack like, on cassette, mm-hmm. right? And and that that was a soundtrack, and this real paying attention to the soundtrack as a marketable feature. And yeah. you know I had the Stealing Home soundtrack. God bless. <laughs> but like the reprise version of that song that you love and. You know, and Mark Foster's writing stuff, and and you kind of start. There's the it's the beginning of that. I feel like, and that's yeah. very much an armchair. Well, I think the I, Young Guns two soundtrack was around this time. It was like a huge yes, soundtrack for Bon Jovi. Yeah, two years two years from now. Yeah. yeah. Um, I always thought this song, it felt like an Amy Grant song to me. I always thought that like it sounded like an Amy Grant song because it sounded like a hymn or some, some churchy song. And the original title of the song was wall street. Hymn was, uh, that was what, uh, Carly Simon originally titled it before changing it to let the river run. I thought that was interesting. And it just the, the illustrations, like the allusions in it to, and it also the way Nichols works the song at the beginning of the film. And we're there and we're in, 
the fairy and there's the Statue of Liberty and you're watching this different. It's all feels like a very immigration, like immigrating to America mm-hmm. him, right? You could stick this movie in like gangs of New York for a very different vibe, yeah. but that we're really, that it's this idea of like people coming to the shores of Manhattan right. to earn their wares and change their life. And the way that that could have worked in, you know, 19, you know, hundred or whenever mm-hmm. or 1920s and that you could then work it now. And that well, and it's migration of, from Jersey or from yeah. Staten Island or whatever. Well, and that evoking or, of Jerusalem, right? That this yes. idea that it's, it's that shining city on a hill. And, and to have then this scrapper kind of person who's trying to alter themselves and live that dream in her <laughs> own way. And that's where I really push against some of the idea of, is it deception or is that she's living more fully? It, she has the opportunity to, to, to seize living fully into herself, into the self that she wants to be. She's not impersonating really anybody. She's just giving herself more power. Right. She's well, using well, Catherine's position to. Yes. And her connection to. Drive her ideas. Yeah. Because yeah. it's almost more about. I mean, she drops Catherine's name at the beginning, but it's really more about that she's at Penny Marsh, and that's more the thing than necessarily anything else. Perfect. Everything's in place. For what? Man, I've been seeing for a while. I think he's it. And I think this could be the weekend we decide. He said there was something very important he wanted to discuss with me. I think he's going to pop the question. You do? I think so. We're in the same city now. I've indicated that I'm receptive to an offer. I've cleared the month of June. And I am, after all, me. Well, what if he doesn't pop the question? <laughs> I really don't think that's a variable. Tess, you know, you don't get anywhere in this world by waiting for what you want to come to you. You make it happen. Watch me, Tess. Learn from me. Uh, This is a good segue into the legacy of the movie. I feel like this movie really prizes, idolizes good work, right? And it's it's this sense of, like, there's no... Like, I was looking at Melanie Griffith's character in this movie. She has no family to speak of. She has relationships with Joan Cusack, Alec Baldwin, all the Staten Island crew. But no family that we see. The last scene, when uh, she and Harrison Ford are in the kitchen and they're getting ready to leave, like, everything feels very robotic. The way that they're eating, like, their toast and... They're bagels and stuff. It's like, okay, well, we've got to eat this Routine. so that we can go to work. Yeah. Right? Because that's where the real life is. Real life is at work. Um, it just feels like it, it makes the it makes work life this huge thing. Um, and I think that that can be a sort of problematic legacy for but it. But I, I do think it is, it is casing it in the 80s, setting it there. You know, the, the shot every time the World Trade Center came on the yeah. screen. You know, you have that moment. But that, that feels very 80s work. It's set being a girl living very far away from New York who'd never been to New York. Mm-hmm. Like, it was this idea of, like, oh, well, this is what New York and working looks mm-hmm. like. 
you know, I agree with you. I did like that they didn't give her like this, this family that, that Tess is sending money home to mom to really kind of pull the family up by the bootstraps. I like that it didn't step in some of those schmaltzy puddles. Mm-hmm. That, that was not a thing. She really, it was about her own betterment. Right. But everything is in service to moving her career, like moving into a better career or something like it. Like it's all in service to that. Like even her reading page six, it's all in service of her work. Mm -hmm. And that's the that's the part that was like, man, like you are really detached from everything else, you know. And I think think that's what I liked about that. It didn't follow the same note that I that. Some of what Joan Cusack, that uh, that character kind of becomes, you know, where are you going to be mm-hmm. when all of this blows up in your face? And not that she should want to have a man and want to have a family. Those, those, She's definitely living in a world where those are the assumptions. Even the audience that's watching this film yeah. in the 88 is going to have those assumptions that that is what she should want. But that she wants something more for herself and for her to be at the age, God, dear God, of 30. But I think there's something about, I think, watching the self-determination of this person. Mm-hmm. And that there's something that's portrayed about Tess that she has gifts of connection. That she has some sort of ability to see beyond some of the BS and see some yeah. of the other things that other people can't see. So there's a there are two shots in this movie that I've talked myself into seeing differently each time, and I wonder what your interpretation is. So Mike Nichols, it should be said, is our first EGOT winner that yes. we've got on our show. So Mike Nichols knows what he's doing. And the way that the film opens with the helicopter shot around the Statue of Liberty, yep. moving into the ferry, going into the city is mirrored by a helicopter shot coming out of Tessa's window, coming coming off of her face, the way we came off of the right. Statue of Liberty's how, face. At the how beginning. desperately did I want that opening shot to be a one shot? I was right. like, oh my God, is this a one shot? Yeah, if he went straight into the ferry, that would what? have been pretty great. I was like, okay. Um, so it final, comes, final it comes off of her face. Right. It comes off of her face and then it peels back and you see just rows of windows on this building and then it leaves the city. And so to me, that communicates a couple of things. One, it communicates that it's like a fairy tale mm-hmm. and we're kind of going into the book and we're coming out of the book. Like the story starts here. It ends here happily ever after the end. Another interpretation that I had, though, of Tess is it can also be kind of a little depressing to see that she is one face in windows of thousands of faces Mm -hmm. working in these buildings. And those faces will be replaced with other faces and those faces will be replaced with other faces. And it's just like, is it as liberating as the opening shot makes it look? Right. Because starting on the Statue of Liberty and transferring that to Tess would have you say, oh, yeah, she's worked so well that she's liberated herself. She's found freedom in this in this career that she's made for herself. But also it looks like she's trapped at the end, too. I don't know whether and I would be curious to look at reviews at the time to see whether this dehumanizing quality that I agree with you, I picked up on as well, that she's one more face in a window all these other windows that you gotta 
climb or get up or do whatever to get mm-hmm. to the top and is the goal of the top who knows but is that a 2019 2020 perspective right or is that something that people called out at the time because do they ever mention like what their commission is for setting this deal up <laughs> no. i was now connected with the movie in a way like what's arbitrage like what is happening how are they even it's, involved in this it's funny and, Succession has changed the way I watch this movie because the whole time I was like, what is the business that we're in here? What this is, is happening. Like Logan right Roy now. would run these people out of this boardroom. No <laughs> like one's dropping this. any F-bombs. I don't know what's <laughs> happening. But that it was this idea of like, oh, well, they're just they're just people who pulled this idea out of the air that these two companies and that they're going to get a commission from it. But we don't talk it. about that. We talk about we talk about the element of it being good work. Right. Classic going on 30 question. Who is this movie for? Betsy. See, what? Boomers is so easy because the people buying movie tickets because it wasn't for me. It was an R-rated movie. I was not going to go see this movie. I saw it on TV later. Right. And you, um, you talked about Rain Man being a movie. That was a movie that adults watch and that you oh, okay. watch an yeah, adult yeah, yeah. movie. Later when I found this movie, I'm like, oh, this is like a movie that adults watch. I could see two categories of folks. Women, obviously. Um, yuppies. I mean, we haven't really talked much about yuppies, but like... Yeah, we love, we love self-referencing ourselves and watching ourselves do stuff. Oh my gosh. Yeah, totally. There's also... It's an it's a, it's a, it's a underdog story. Underdog story. And, yeah, and where the goal is work. Oh my God. Like, <laughs> it's like heaven to a yuppie. And I don't think we have other films here, even though Tom Cruise is a little down as luck. He's not really portrayed as an underdog. Like, this is really the only David and Goliath kind of story of these five. Yes. Yeah. So there's something about that as a as a you know movie trope as a as a you know cliche that we love that like yeah. go Tess go stick mm-hmm. it to the man you know that scene in the lobby where they're getting in on and off the elevators and you're just like yeah it's just, yeah totally yeah. Uh, what is your rating for this movie out of five? Can you remind stars? me of my other scores? <sighs> I did not write them down. Hang on. Dangerous Liaisons was a four. Rain Man, I think you gave a 3.5. No. Oh, no. I couldn't have. Or a three. The oh, Accidental yeah. Tourist, I think we you gave a 2.5 and I gave it two. <laughs> I'm going to give it. I'm going to give it a four. I'm going to give it a four. All right. Yeah, I think you gave Mississippi Burning the same score as Dangerous Liaisons. I think you gave Mississippi Burning a four. I'm very generous. <laughs> so I got I got three fours. Okay. So now I'm going to have to order them here. What do you give it? I have, uh, I've got it as a 3.5. Okay. Sort of solid middle of the road, leaning towards good. Um, it's totally fine movie. Really watchable. It may be the most watchable movie that we've had on the show. Would this be nominated for an Oscar today? I feel like it was unique enough at the time that yes, but now I don't think it would be. Yeah, see, I don't. I don't Can think. Can you it has... imagine this film being remade now? <sighs> Is it even possible? What would it look like? What would the genders of the characters be? Like that. That started to plague me as I was watching the movie. I'm like, could you? Why haven't we? And have we not rebooted a movie like this? Well, so it 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 feels like you know it's a movie about someone who's trying to get past the gatekeepers. Right. Mm -hmm. So who, 
you know, what are the scenarios where people are trying to get past gatekeepers now when it comes well, to like work? I feel like we would have more people of color in this movie. Yeah. <laughs> which we did not have other than just could I see another person of color fetching someone a drink like that just over and over and over again it just every time i saw it I was like oh, oh my god no like yeah but when i can start my own internet startup like if i want to sure right like There's, i feel like yes. that's the that's the role that tess would have taken you know in the internet age she would have said you know what i have an idea i don't need somebody to let me in so that I can work my idea. Right. I can just structure has it. become so decentralized mm-hmm. that I don't know what this would look like. There isn't like an intern program mm-hmm. that they keep referring to this universal intern program or mentorship yeah. program that she's just not breaking into. So it'd have, have to be something to institutional. So yeah. like a poli- a political movie. I could see it being like a politics movie. Or it's, and I think it's a good vehicle, and it always is these underdog stories to be commentaries on how the system what it has become and where it has become rigid. Yeah. And where it isn't allowing, where the gate is closed. I have it as a uh, no for Oscar nomination. Where does this rank with our 1989 movies? We have them okay, all so here. So here is where we can talk about. There's a difference here. And I've been <laughs> listening to a lot of wrapping up 2019 podcasts, right? So yeah. there are the movies and the media that I love that I think are the best. And then there is what should have won the Oscar. And I think those are two different things. Would you agree with me? Our show is predicated on we're just going to go with what they nominated. And that's what we're going to do. No, I'm not dipping outside that. But there is what is of these five movies, my favorite movie. Right. And then there is what of these actual movies. Oh, should have won. Should have won the Oscar. Okay. So that's so. So what would what would you which one do you want to take first? I think my fave and my Oscar winner are the same movie. Oh, and I'm not sure what they are. I like that I'm not sure. Here is my ranking. Okay. Number five, The Accidental Tourist. Agreed. <laughs> yep, absolutely. We're together. <laughs> the Accidental Tourist is dead last. Uh, this, is, got... this is what you liked. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, okay, okay. I'm, okay, we're there together. Yes. I've got Mississippi Burning at four. Oh, we now we're disagreeing. Yep. I've got Rain Man at three. I've got Working Girl at two. My favorite movie that I that we have watched and what should have won the Oscar that year, Dangerous Liaisons. So, excellent tourist down here. Right. Rain Man number four. Okay. Mississippi Burning number three. Big jump up. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> In terms of what I liked, Dangerous Liaisons number two. Okay. Girl number one. All right. But who should win the Oscar? Working girl number two, Dangerous Liaisons number one. Oh, interesting. I like that. I really, I mean, Dangerous Liaisons is a great movie, but in terms of like enjoyable, watchable, like about working girl, oh, it's a tough, it's a tough watch. Yeah. 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 But then Dangerous Liaisons as a movie, you know, which makes me now feel like super stereotypical to go with the like period drama, but that was really nice. And there are just some flaws in, in Mississippi Burning that kind of keeps it from, from me being in that. But it was in, I mean, as I, you saw, I gave them all fours. I have some other movies that we can consider that came out in 1988. Okay. Um, tell me if any of these would pass Working Girl for you. As a nominated movie or as a movie I enjoy? 
Right, as a movie you enjoy. Okay. I'll start with the list of highest grossing movies of the year. These were the top grossing movies, so the most popular movies with fans. Okay. Number 10, Beetlejuice. Number 9, Cocktail. Number 8, The Naked Gun. Number 7, Die Hard. So good, though. I know. 6, Crocodile Dundee 2. 2. 2. Top 10? 5 was Twins. 4 was Big. Three was Coming to America. Two was Who Framed Roger Rabbit. And number one was Rain Man. Would any of those move into one of those top spots for you? I thought I think, Who, Framed, Who Framed Roger Rabbit was so inventive. I think Who Framed Roger Rabbit for me. Yeah. Yeah. I think um, it should have been nominated Pro. I think it should have been. I, Beetlejuice is fun. It's a fave. It's a heavy rotation of, uh-huh. of my like high school years, but not in this zone. You, you can make the case for big. Yeah. But I do feel like, because you know, we talk about, I just listened to, you must remember this. They did their six degrees of song of the South. Right. Great. Totally recommending to listeners, but that sort of live action animation mashup thing that Disney had been playing with that all along. And that Roger Rabbit was kind of a moving of that mm-hmm. board in a way. And well, Bob Hoskins is so good. And just thinking of that movie from 30 years ago in the world of IP that we live in now. Yes. There's no freaking way that Bugs Bunny and Mickey Mouse are in a scene together in the current day and age. Oh, and the fact that all of these companies signed off on their characters being in this one movie mm-hmm. is amazing. Finally, Roger Ebert's top 10 from 1988. Okay. Since we've stuck with Raj the whole way. This was his top 10. Number 10, Running on Empty. Oh, River Phoenix. River Phoenix, yeah. I love that movie. Mm -hmm. It's a good movie. It's a good movie. Number nine, Dear America, Letters Home from Vietnam. Talk about boomery. This was a documentary featuring excerpts from letters written by servicemen overseas from the Vietnam War. Yeah. Like Ken Burns style. Yeah. My like dearest that. Margaret. Mm-hmm. Well, and, you know, setting up Born on the Fourth of July down the road. Yeah. Number eight for him was Who Framed Roger Rabbit. I mean, it's a great movie. Uh, number seven was Wings of Desire. Them oh. Vendors. Yeah. Ben Vendors. Yeah. Love him. Number six was A Fish Called Wanda. Number five, Salam Bombay. Which is uh, an Indian movie, obviously, yeah. uh, about a homeless child surviving on the streets of Bombay. Whoa. Interesting. Number four, he has a movie called Shy People, which I have never heard of before. Um, directed by Andre Konchalovsky. It's a surreal road trip movie from New York to Louisiana. Okay. okay. <laughs> Number three for him was The Unbearable Lightness of Being. Oh. Which not, not feels, big. yeah, that feels very Oscar-y, right? You Daniel sub, Day out, Lewis. sub out accidental tourist in a heartbeat. I know. Daniel Day-Lewis. His number two was the accidental tourist. I think, I think like Lawrence Kasdan must have paid him money. Oh. <laughs> and oh, his, his number one, his number one of 1988 was Mississippi Burning. Some more movies to consider from 1988. I think I would stand by, though, just looking at this list, I would swap Who Framed Roger Rabbit into the nominees if I could put a movie in there. 
And uh, but I think Dangerous Liaison still takes it for me. Like I'm excited it. to kind of keep doing this because I want to get us to that moment because I'm seeing the build towards us now being in this like 10 movie potential. You can finally put away the Aquanet. You won't need it anymore as we head into the 90s starting next year. Excited. When we look at the best picture nominees from 1990. Uh, thank you for coming with me down this 1989 route. Love it. Next up, 1990, born on the 4th of July, will kick us off. New decade. Let's do it. Bye.